0: Hi there. Welcome to the Elisa Childers podcast. I'm just popping on here to let you know that today's podcast is going to be a little bit different. So first of all, I have to apologize for the weird quality on this little intro I'm doing. I'm actually at a conference and I'm in the green room where there's this really loud fan. So uh, the podcast itself will be better than this little intro. So, a couple of weeks ago, I did a live stream on YouTube with a bunch of information about a Nashville church who had a viral Bible meme. This meme was basically claiming that the Bible is not the word of God. And so I just wanted to give you a heads up that that's what you're going to be listening to in today's podcast. So it'll be a little bit different in that you'll hear me give some teaching and then take some live questions. And hey, if you haven't joined us on YouTube yet, this would be a good time to go to youtube.com slash Alisa Childers, subscribe to that channel and click the bell notification so you can know every time we release a new video. But for today, here is the live stream I did last week about the Nashville Church with the viral Bible meme. Hi there, everybody. Welcome. So glad to see you here for our live stream tonight. Uh, man, its I have not done a whole lot of YouTube live streams, so it's great to be with all of my YouTube friends. Great to see you here. I'm already seeing people start to comment and say hello to everyone. So it's so great to see you all here. This is, uh, this is a topic we're going to talk about tonight that's been kind of heavy on my heart for a few days. And to give you a little background... Last week, there was a church in Nashville who posted uh, a meme on Facebook. Basically, I believe it was a sum up of the sermon for the Sunday morning. And the meme had to do with the Bible, and it was a list of things the Bible is, and this was a list of things the Bible isn't. And uh, the meme generated such a reaction that uh, it even got written up in the Christian Post. And so we're going to talk about all of that tonight. But um, gosh, I've been praying today about this this. And I just, I want to say something that I realized that probably at some point, if not live, maybe later, um, some progressive Christians will probably watch this. And I just want to say to you that if you are a progressive Christian and you're watching this, I want you to know that um, I am not against you. I'm not your enemy. I don't hate you. Um, I think that we share something in common. So Progressive Christians have very strong beliefs about who God is, what He does do, what He doesn't do, Uh, very strong beliefs about what is good for the world, And, um, and I recognize that. And I I would just ask that you would extend to me the same benefit of the doubt that I that I try to give you in knowing that, that I don't think that progressive Christians have terrible motives. I've actually said this in interviews many times. I think that there are, can be all kinds of different motivations for all of us to believe whatever it is we believe. And so if you're here and you're a progressive Christian, I just want you to know I love you. And I, I do have sharp, strong disagreements uh, on certain points. And I know that we both feel that way. And we both stand up for what we believe because we love people. And we do believe that what we believe about God is best for people and best for the world. And that's where my heart is coming from, because I really just believe the gospel is so beautiful. And, you know, just to give you a tiny bit of background in my uh, to my story— I grew up in an uh, evangelical church. I had great Christian parents, it gave me the real gospel. I I mean Christians were the people who loved God, they loved the Bible and they loved people. And it was just very real to me. I've loved Jesus as far back as I can remember, loved reading his word, and I uh, I really didn't um have any doubts about Uh, what I believed until I was an adult. And uh, I think the reason I didn't have those doubts is because I did have a pretty good experience with the church. Uh, Not that it was perfect, uh, not by any stretch, was my family perfect, or the churches I went to perfect, or the pastors that I had were they perfect? But it was generally a good experience. Christianity worked for me, and so it wasn't until I was an adult and I ended up attending a church that I didn't realize at the time was a progressive Christian church. And I was invited to be a par- part of a much smaller group by the pastor, and it was in that group that there was a, it was just a it was a, a deconstruction type of group where the pastor was deconstructing, he was encouraging other people to deconstruct. And so all of these precious beliefs that I'd held all my life were basically deconstructed. And if I'm honest, I was stubborn, I would try to fight, but it was when we left the church and I was isolated away from a a church community, that's when the doubts that were planted in that class began to take root and grow. And I went through my own deconstruction. And I didn't know that that's what it was called. I didn't know there was a word for it. I actually didn't want it to happen. But all of my beliefs just unraveled. I really relate with that metaphor. I've heard many progressive Christians use about the sweater where there is a, you know, a string uh, that's sticking out and then you pull on the string and you keep pulling and then everything just unravels. I, I really relate with that. But in my story, God had a different ending for me. My reconstruction involved going back to the historic roots of Christianity. Christianity, learning everything I could about what defined Christianity originally, what that meant to the earliest Christians and to Jesus, and then trace that through church history and find out what I was raised with or what I believe now, what lines up with that? And is it true? Those were the two big questions. So I came out on the other side of that, uh, more convinced than ever that the historic Christian gospel is true. It's good for the world. It's good for all of us. The Bible is God's word. It, we can trust it. It is, it is uh, without contradictions and errors. And we can submit ourselves to its authority because it's good for us. It's God's word to us. And so um, I have a, a lot invested in this tonight because um, the story that I'm seeing come out of this church in in Nashville is a mirror of, you know, what I went through at the church that I was in as well. So uh, I just wanted to start by sharing a little bit of my heart about that. And now I want to get into kind of our topic for tonight, Which is this sort of viral meme that this progressive church had last week? So I'm going to show you here. This is the uh, the Christian Post article and the title. Whoopsie! Hi there. The why is it doing that? (laughs) Oh, gosh. Okay, well, oh, I know why it's doing that. Hang on, hang on. Okay, newbie here. All right. So the the article is called, Nashville Church Says Bible Isn't the Word of God Then Draws Ire. So the article says, a progressive Nashville church has drawn the ire of the internet after sharing a message on social media, declaring the Bible isn't the word of God, inerrant or infallible. And so it goes on to quote from the pastor of the church. And then they, they quote This meme that was posted on social media that kind of went mini-viral and got lots of reactions. Apparently, there were, as of Wednesday, last Wednesday, there were... Uh, more than 1,200 emoji reactions, along with 1,800 comments. Uh, Of the 1,200 emojis, more than half were angry faces. Just over 300 were laughing emojis, while uh, more than 100 were sad faces, and only 157 reactions approved of the post. And so, of course, those numbers have probably changed in the several days since then, which actually surprises me because in my interactions, I see quite a bit of support for progressive Christianity. So, I was kind of surprised to see that there was uh, an overly negative sort of response to it. But I'm going to show you the meme here. And so on one side of the column, you have the Bible isn't, and then there's five statements. And those five statements are, the Bible is not the Word of God. It isn't self-interpreting. It isn't a science book. It isn't an answer or rule book. It isn't inerrant or infallible, according to this meme. And then on the right side, it says the Bible is, and five statements follow that. It is, according to this meme, a product of community, a library of texts, multivocal, a human response to God— living and dynamic. And so I would just like to talk through this meme and give my response to it, because I, I just think this got a lot of traction. I did a couple of other interviews this week and people were asking me my thoughts on this. So I just thought that I would offer that to you. Um, so I'll say at this point that if you, I do wanna take some questions by the way. Uh, so, so I'd love to do that. So if you have a question related to this topic, Put the word question in all caps, and I will try to get to a few of your questions and hopefully just bring some clarifying thoughts um, as to what I think about this meme. So let's dig in. Uh, The first statement is the Bible isn't the Word of God. Now, I'll be honest with you, the first thing I thought about when I first saw this meme is um, the question, why? Why would you assume that the Bible is not the Word of God? Um, Certainly, Christians have believed for 2,000 years that it is the Word of God. And um, when we're done kind of talking through the meme, I'd like to talk a little bit about what Jesus had to say about the Bible, because I think that is the most important thing. If we're going to call ourselves Jesus followers, if we're going to call ourselves Christians, I think it's reasonable to suggest that our view of the Bible should line up with what Jesus' view of the Bible is. If we're going to use that title Christian, I think for me, if I were to say the Bible isn't the Word of God, I don't think I could rightfully call myself a Jesus follower because that wasn't Jesus' view. And I'll get into that in just a moment. But the second statement says the Bible is not self-interpreting. So typically speaking, when Christians use the term self-interpreting, What they're talking about is there's there's this um, when we come to the Bible, we're coming to the Bible with the understanding that there the primary author of the Bible is God. I'm talking about the historic view of Christianity. When you approach the Bible knowing that the primary author of the Bible is God. Now, certainly, yes, he used human authors, uh, and we're going to get into this in a little bit. But uh, when we say it's self-interpreting, we believe that the, that God is the primary author. We know that God can't make mistakes. Uh, God cannot lie. Uh, God cannot contradict himself. So therefore, if the Bible is God's word, which I'm going to make a case for in a minute, then it's not going to have contradictions within itself because it's God's word and God can't do those things. Therefore, his word wouldn't do those things. So when we come across a portion of scripture that has tension, uh, if there's an appearance of contradiction, if it seems like it's pivoting in a in a way that we don't understand, historically speaking, Christians would say, well, it's, it's we that lack the understanding. It's we that lack Uh, the knowledge or the understanding to understand what's going on here. And we see this happen time and time again in history. There have been many times in history where people have said, hey, the Bible got this wrong. And then they'll make some archaeological uh, uh, discovery that's oops. Okay. So it wasn't wrong. Um, There have been many, many cases of this with entire populations of people. This happened with King David. This happened with uh, several different things where they'll make a discovery and say, oh, actually, the We were the ones who lacked knowledge. And so when Christians approach the Bible that way and they say it's self-interpreting, what we do is we take a Bible verse that might be unclear because there are some verses about certain topics that are not totally clear. And when a verse is unclear, we recognize that the whole Bible is the voice of one God. So therefore, we can look to other scriptures that are more clear about that particular topic to help interpret the one that is less clear. So that's generally what people mean when they talk about the Bible being self-interpreting. And, and just once again, looking at this meme, I would just say, why, why would you just announce that it's, self, it's not self-interpreting? Do you just deciding that it's not? Well, the only conclusion I can come to to answer the question, why would you just assert that the Bible is not the Word of God and it's not self-interpreting? Well, that would be if you're approaching the Bible from a different perspective, that God is not the primary author, that humans are the primary author. And as we get through this meme, you'll see that I I do believe this is the case. And all of my research I've done on progressive Christianity, there's a much greater emphasis on the human aspect of the Bible than the divine aspect. Now, not all progressive Christians will say that it's not divinely inspired or that God didn't have a part to play in it, of course. But in Progressive Christianity, as this meme will show us, as the article shows us, um, in Progressive Christianity, the Bible is viewed primarily as a human book, whereas historically Christians would view the Bible as primarily a divine book, where he used human authors. Uh, The next uh, statement according to this meme, the Bible isn't a science book. So right here, I can say we have a point of agreement here. The Bible is not a science book. Uh, the, The Genesis account of creation was not written for the purpose of answering the question of how exactly how many years old the earth is. That wasn't the purpose that it was written. Sometimes we do bring Questions in our modern context that were not relevant to the original authors and to the original intention of what was written. With that said, though, where I think we would part, where I would part with progressive Christians on this is, uh, I I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that in progressive Christianity, they would even go further and say that the Bible gets— facts about science wrong in the Bible. In fact, uh, Rachel Hald Evans wrote about this in her book, Inspired. Um, She she writes in her introduction that the Bible presupposes a flat and stationary earth. Now, I'm not going to get into that apologetic right now. There are tons of articles online you can look up. Uh, You can go to crossexamined.org. You can go to STR. You can go to all kinds of different apologetics resources to uh, find lots that has been written on that question, the Discovery Institute, all kinds of places. Places. Um, but where I would part with the progressive Christian view on this, I would agree it's not a science book. That's not the purpose of why it was written. But it's not going to report anything about nature that as intersects with science that's incorrect or in error. And so... One of the things we have to understand, even about the doctrine of inerrancy, the doctrine of inerrancy allows for figures of speech, metaphor, poetic language. So the Bible is not always to be taken literally, but it communicates literal truths. But sometimes it communicates those literal truths. Uh, through a metaphor or through poetic language. So in that way, we, we don't take everything in the Bible literally, but the truths that the Bible is communicating are literal. So it's not going to get a fact wrong about science or, or about something uh, along those lines. Okay, moving on. So the next statement, according to this meme, is the Bible isn't an answer book or a rule book. Once again, I can say I think we have a bit of a point of agreement here. Um, I believe this is what Brian McLaren referred to as the constitutional approach to the Bible, as if, um, some people may have a view that the Bible is like this, um, this law code, this, you know, this, this rule book or this dictionary where you open it up and you go down and you find the section and you find the rule for that. And, and, and that's that. Certainly that isn't the primary purpose of the Bible. However, The Bible does answer the deepest questions of life, the most important questions of life. The Bible answers the question, what are we? What's the meaning of our lives? What are humans? What's wrong with the world? What's essentially going to fix what's wrong with the world? The Bible answers questions like, who is God? What is his plan of salvation? What is the gospel? What happens after we die? The Bible has. Meaningful answers and truthful answers to all of the deepest questions of life. Although it's not primary, primarily written as an answer book. Again, it's not an encyclopedia where you go find your topic and, and find your information. It's told with all kinds of different literary genres. There's poetry and prose and, uh, epistles and history. And there are, however, rules in the Bible. So it's not a rule book, but it does contain rules. The Bible has a lot to say about the nature and character of God. We learn from the Bible that God is holy, which means he can't have any unity with sin, which means that God has something to say about what sin is. Ultimately, sin, this this uh, sort of like this acidic... Uh, that just mars, everything it touches, it, it decays and corrodes the beautiful creation that God made. Well, God has some things to say about that. So there are going to be statements in the Bible that have to do with what we should do as people, what we shouldn't do as people. But I would agree it's not primarily written to be a rule book or an answer book. All right, finally, uh, the Bible isn't, according to this meme, and I'll put it back up here so you can see it, the Bible isn't inerrant or infallible. Now, to me, this again is sort of in the category of the first two. Um, It's just sort of making a statement that the Bible is not inerrant and it's not infallible. And so my question again would be, I think the burden of proof would be on the person saying that it's not, especially considering this has been the position of the church uh, for 2,000 years. Now, yes, of course, I'm aware that the doctrine of inerrancy wasn't hammered out until later. That phrase didn't become a thing. Neither did the Trinity and other doctrines that got hammered out uh, later. But those doctrines represent biblical teachings. They represent, in my view, I'm going to try to make a case for this, the view of Jesus. Okay, so that's the first column. Now let's take a look at the second column here where there are positive statements about what the Bible actually is. So I'm going to have a little more agreement here on this side. So it says the Bible is a product of community agreed it is in fact God used many different authors from different places in the world who spoke different languages they had different cultures and he used all these people to breathe out his word now my su- what I suspect is going on here in this progressive Christian meme is there because they approach the Bible and I'm really honestly doing my best to uh, represent the progressive view correctly I've read a lot of different progressive Christian books on the Bible I've watched lots of videos. Of course, I recognize there are going to be some people in the progressive camp that might not word it exactly the way that I'm wording it to you. But this is uh, this is what I've gathered through my years of research, reading books. I believe this best represents the larger, broader view of progressive uh, Christians on the Bible. So with the understanding that they're primarily approaching the Bible as a human book, when they say something like it's the product of community, uh, I interpret that to mean that they're saying... A product of a human community. So, you have these groups of Israelites back in the Old Testament. They're doing the best they can to understand God in the times and places in which they live. They're, they're responding to God in their times and places. Uh, but according to the progressive view, uh, not everything that they said, God said, he really said, and not everything that the Bible records he said they were supposed to do, they were actually supposed to do. That was really just them trying to understand uh, God as best they could. And so um, I think that I would agree that it is a product of community, but I would include God being the primary the primary uh, active agent in that community, but certainly using people with different grammar styles, level, levels of education, different personalities, all of that good stuff. All right, the next one, the Bible is a library of texts. Absolutely agree. The Bible Bible is not just one book that is wooden from Genesis to Revelation. You have a collection of books written over uh, a large span of time by various different writers, uh, lots of different genres. There's poetry, there's uh, historical narrative, there's apocalyptic literature, there's prophecy, There is. Uh, there are the epistles, there are all kinds of different genres, and we need to take those genres into consideration when we read the Bible, just like we would with any other book. So I agree with that one. It is a library of texts. But once again, remembering the, the the two different approaches where historically Christians would say God is the primary author of the Bible in progressive Christianity, that's primarily going to be humans. When we see it viewed as a library of texts, um, this is something that that doesn't involve God as much as the other. A, a good uh, point on this one is Rob Bell book about the Bible, Um, I think it's called What is the Bible? I don't have it right in front of me, but when he talks about the Bible being a library of texts and he's talking about biblical inspiration, he puts the inspiration part after these these texts have been gathered and put together, then God inspires them. Whereas historically we would say, no, this is, and we're going to talk about inspiration in a second. This is breathed out by God. Um, So next one is the Bible is multivocal. So uh, agreed. Yes, it is multivocal, but again, with the approaches, the primary voice being God, and then in progressive Christianity, I I suspect, and if there's progressive Christians listening and I'm getting this, you know, you disagree with me, that's fine. You can put that in the comments, but multivocal meaning a a collaboration between maybe God and man, either on an even keel or with the human side sort of being a little bit more primary. And then finally, I mean, all of this leading up to this main point here, and I think in all of my research, this next line uh, represents the progressive view of the Bible the absolute best, and that is that the Bible is a human response to God. And so, this is the progressive view of the Bible. Now, certainly, there are human responses to God recorded in the Bible. Uh, we have the Psalms. We have beautiful prayers and songs recorded in the Bible. One one that I think of uh, is, is uh, Nebuchadnezzar. So, in the book of Daniel, it's just magnificent. He's humbled by God, uh, just living like a beast. And then after he's humbled, he, he issues this praise of God that is just so moving. And that is his response to God. But the historic view would say God inspired Daniel to record that. And whereas the progressive view would, I don't know quite how they would view that exact one. If that was just that was just Nebuchadnezzar's you know view at that moment. But I think that would probably be the difference. And then the last one is that it's living and dynamic. Now, the author of Hebrews tells us that the Bible is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And this kind of sounds like that. But in my experience in the progressive movement, when they use the word living and dynamic, what they actually mean is that the meaning and the word, the meaning of the words, the meaning of the interpretations can change over time. There are even people in the progressive movement that adopt process theology, which would be along the lines of God learning along with as time goes on. So God is growing and changing and progressing. And so I, I suspect that there's a little bit of that in there when they're saying that the Bible is living and dynamic. Okay, so I'm going to take, uh, before I move on to the next section here, uh, I'm going to take a couple of questions and let's see, I'm going to go back up here. So if you have a question, put the word question in all caps. Um Question here from Jay Major says, what does it mean that the Bible is inerrant? This is a wonderful question. Uh, I touched on just a little bit of that a second ago. When we say the Bible is inerrant, we don't mean that we take everything in it literally. Um, I actually have a blog post on my uh, website that is a summary of the introduction to a book by Norm Geisler, where uh, he's talking basically about what we mean when we say the Bible is inerrant. You can also go on line and read the Chicago statement on inerrancy it actually might surprise you if you've never read it um, it's so so when we say the Bible is inerrant we realize that sometimes the Bible rounds off numbers we realize that uh, there there are figures of speech there's metaphor there's poetry all that kind of stuff but basically to say the Bible is inerrant just means it doesn't make errors and so there's a there's a logical syllogism behind this belief and it goes like this. God, uh, God cannot err. The Bible is God's word. Now, if both of those propositions are true, which I'm going to make a case for the Bible being the God's word in just a minute, if both of those propositions are true, then it logically must follow that the Bible cannot err. So that is the logical syllogism that stands behind the doctrine of inerrancy. But again, I encourage you to go on a line and read the Chicago Statement on Inerrancy and learn more about that. All right, I'm going to try to find a—I a, want to be fair here, so I'm going to try to find a, a skeptical question here because I'm not just going to take questions that are, that are easy. But I'm, I'm scrolling through, and I don't want you to get bored. Um, okay, so I'm not seeing—okay, questions. Uh, from Paul Davis. So have you discovered which false teacher or teachers, uh, example, Eckhart, I don't know if he means Eckhart Tolle there, but Bell, McLaren, etc. this church and pastor has used uh, as their progressive Gnostic origins, I do but okay, let me get that back up. Um, I don't know, this, uh, you could probably check on the website, but I do know that they have had progressive speakers in before. I believe Brian McLaren has spoken there uh, before, uh, and uh, I believe he's actually maybe even scheduled to speak there again. And so some of those early emergent leaders I know were, were widely read in this church, but I, I don't want to speak to it beyond that. But I do, I do believe McLaren was an influence uh, in that church. Okay, so I'm going to move on, and I am going to—my mouse is not working wonderfully. There it is. Um, so as I do this next section, if, um, if you have another question, put the word question in all caps. I'll try to get to it, and, uh, but I'm going to move on to the next section of what I have to say tonight. So um, I want to talk to you about something as we process this meme— I want to talk to you about something that Hillary Ferrer from Mama Bear Apologetics, which is a great book, by the way, uh, it's called Mama Bear Apologetics, Empowering Your Kids to Challenge Cultural Lies. So in that book, Hillary identifies something that she calls linguistic theft. And so this is when words are sort of co-opted, the definitions are changed, and then they're used again uh, to mean something different than the listener understands them to mean. Now, I hope that wasn't too confusing, but I'm going to give you an example. So, um, I, in my book, I write about the situation I was in, in which I asked the pastor if he believed in divine inspiration. He said, yes, I do. And then months later, I learned that he actually meant that the Bible was inspired much like a C.S. Lewis book or an A.W. Tozer book. He didn't believe it was divinely inspired on, um, on a different level as far as like something a Christian writer will write or something that would inspire you. And this really surprised me because I really thought he understood what I was asking when I said the Bible is divinely inspired. And so as we talked through the meme, I think you may have recognized some of that linguistic theft there. When, when words are being used, that means something a little bit different than people have traditionally understood them to mean. Uh, so I want to talk a little bit about biblical inspiration because this is a really important topic for Christians to understand what we do and what we don't mean when we are using the term biblical inspiration. So historically, the Christian understanding of the doctrine of inspiration, as it applies to scripture, it just literally means, and I've said this a couple times, that God breathed out his word through humans. So we are going to see their personalities. We're going to see their cultural context reflected in that. We're going to see their writing styles. Um, they, they, They weren't just dictating, like channeling God's word and just like a human typewriter, typing out exactly what God uh, was saying every single word. God used their words to breathe out his words. And so, It wasn't the writers themselves who were inspired, but it was the words they wrote down in the Bible that were inspired. And of course, we all know 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17, which says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And so this phrase, breathed out by God, um, you know, in English, that's, I got to count, I'm bad at math. words. In the Greek, that's one single word. So that's not four words in Greek. It's just one single word. And that word really suggests that scripture is the very breath of God himself. So Dr. Michael Kruger, great Bible scholar, he writes that this suggests the absolute highest authority for scripture, the authority of the divine voice. And so, uh, so that's what we mean when we talk about the Bible being divinely inspired. And so in my view, if we do believe that the the words that are on the page are breathed out by God, that that's God's Word on a page, then I, I couldn't say that it's not the Word of God, at least according to the Bible it is. And I, I'm going to make a further case for that in just a moment, but I can't just see it as only multivocal, only a library of texts, only a human response to God, if it itself is claiming to be the very breath of God breathed out onto the page. Now, here's what I want to get to. So as Christians, we want our view of Scripture to be what Jesus' view of scripture is, right? This isn't circular reasoning where we're just saying, well, Second Timothy says, the Bible says that the Bible's inspired, so therefore it's inspired. No, that's one piece of the puzzle. The internal evidence does suggest the Bible is claiming to be divinely inspired, so that's one thing. But the question is, is that what Jesus thought? Did Jesus believe what Paul wrote in Second Timothy, that all scripture is breathed out by God? Well, of course, when Jesus walked the Earth, the New Testament had not been written yet, so when we 're talking about jesus' view of scripture we 're talking about the Old Testament scriptures so the the jewish uh, the law and the prophets, the Jewish scriptures were the same books we have today. they were organized in a bit of a different order, but all of those same books are the same same things Jesus had the same thing that's sitting in your lap today and so How did Jesus handle this? What did he have to say about it? Did he think that it was a human response to God? Did Jesus think that the people who wrote the Old Testament were simply doing the best they could to understand God in the times and places in which they lived? Did they look around at their cultures, see their neighbors doing blood sacrifices and say, oh, I bet our God wants us to do that, so we better start doing that, and then write that in their scriptures? Or did Jesus actually think, Those were divine commands. Does Jesus think that when a prophet spoke for God in the Old Testament, that that was God speaking? Well, we can look to uh, the New Testament documents, the biographies of Jesus' life, to let us know what he had to say about that. And if there's one thing Jesus affirmed over and over and over again, it's that the Old Testament scriptures are, quote— the Word of God. So in Matthew 154 Jesus references several commands uh, from Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy when he references those commands, note what he says here. He says, "For God said, honor your father and mother, and the one who speaks evil of father or mother must be put to death. So Jesus is quoting the Old Testament, by saying, for God said. Notice he doesn't say, uh, some guys who were trying to figure out God said, he says, God said to you, and then he quotes an Old Testament prophet. In Mark 7, 8 through 13, he criticized the Pharisees. He said they were leaving, quote, the commandment of God. So Jesus was viewing what they were leaving and, and adding their traditions to was actually not just the like an ancient spiritual travel journal, this was the commandment of God, according to Jesus. And he told them they void the word of God. There's that phrase, word of God, again, by your tradition. In Matthew 22, and this is in verses 31 and 32, Jesus is getting ready to quote Exodus 3, 6. And he says, have you not read what God said to you? So when Jesus quotes the Old Testament over and over and over again, he refers to it as the word of God. Jesus also taught that the Bible was inspired by God. So uh, Jesus was teaching in the temple courts and some Pharisees were kind of gathered there and they were always trying to trip Jesus up. So there was this kind of brilliant exchange between Jesus and the Pharisees. But Jesus appealed to the inspiration of scripture to help them understand that the Messiah was more than just a descendant of David. And so he said this, he said, how is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, called him, meaning the Messiah, Lord. So Jesus could have just said, how is it then that David called him Lord? But he says David was speaking by the Spirit. This is actually the very definition of the doctrine of biblical inspiration that we talked about before. Jesus also believed that the Scripture was authoritative. Think about this. In Matthew 4, I believe it is, we have the scene where Jesus is being tempted by the devil in the wilderness. So this is, this is, the devil's big chance to tempt Jesus, to try to make him fall. And how does Jesus fight temptation? Well, he appeals to the authority of the scriptures. So all three times that the devil comes to him and tries to tempt him, Jesus fights that temptation every single time with three words. Those three words are, it is written. Now, there's a great uh, little book called Christ in the Bible by a Bible scholar, John Wenham. And he wrote this about that phrase, it is written. He said, it is clear that Jesus understood it is written to be the equivalent to God says. So there we have it, not only Jesus calling the Old Testament scriptures, the word of God over and over and over again. But he also says, it is written, which is the equivalent of God says, uh, he and his disciples say that phrase dozens of times in the New Testament. I tried to count once and I just, I lost count after like 40, I think it was, but they say this all over the place. And uh, I love what uh, Bible scholar Andrew Wilson said in his book. He's got a great little book, Unbreakable. I think it's what the Son of God says about the Word of God. And here's what Andrew Wilson says. He says, "Consider the way Jesus fights. He has the resources of heaven available, yet he fights by using the authority of the scriptures. His position is unequivocal. You're trying to tempt me, but the scriptures have spoken and that's the end of the conversation." So, Jesus appealed to the authority of scripture to fight the temptation that he encountered by the devil in the wilderness. Now, we we've been talking about inerrancy Let's just leave that word out. I want you to imagine with all that we've just read about what Jesus had to say about the scripture, just imagine somebody came up to Jesus and suggested that the scriptures had contradictions in it, or they said to Jesus, you know, I think that there are some mistakes there. I think that they recorded something that they thought God said, but he didn't really say it. I think that Jesus would be astonished that suggestion because of the high view that Jesus had of the scriptures, and we see this illustrated in Matthew 22. So, this is where the Sadducees are trying to entrap Jesus. Uh, they, They ask him a question about the resurrection, and he answers them very plainly, and here's what he says. He says, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. Now, let's think about this logically. If Jesus thought the scriptures had errors, why would he tell someone else they were in error because they didn't know this errored scripture? Obviously, Jesus was viewing the scriptures as an absolute standard of truth by which to judge that they were wrong because they didn't know it. So I think a case can be made that Jesus, I mean, that word inerrancy, the doctrine of inerrancy hadn't been uh, officially, you know, mandated as as a doctrine. But I don't think Jesus would have agreed that there are contradictions in the Bible. Also, Jesus seem to have the view that the Bible was infallible. Now, the definition of biblical infallibility, it's a bit tricky to define. There's tons of debate, debate over this. So traditionally, it was a really strong term that was closely related to inerrancy, just meaning that Scripture uh, is not capable of teaching error. And sometimes those two terms are even today used interchangeably. You'll see that on doctrinal statements and things. Um, but today, some people have defined it more broadly to say something like the Scripture cannot fail. I like that definition. I think that's a a good definition of infallibility, but is that what Jesus thought? So in John 10, Jesus is about to be stoned for claiming to be God. When this happens, he appeals to the infallibility of Scripture. So this is what he says. He says, "...the Scripture cannot be broken." When Jesus prays for his disciples in John 17, this is the famous prayer in John 17 where he prays for his disciples, then he prays for people who will come to believe in him because of their testimony. That's us. Did you know that? Jesus prayed for you, and it's recorded in the Bible. It's really awesome. But this is what he prayed. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. So Jesus is saying that sanctification process where we know what is right and wrong, how we become more conformed to the image of Christ, we're going to know that through his word. And so Jesus could have said, sanctify them by your truth. Uh, Put put this light in their heart where they'll always know. Uh, Lead them, quicken their conscience to know. Uh, Sanctify them by your truth. No, he says your word is truth. So Jesus didn't see the scriptures as a book of recommendations or or primarily a human book. Uh, He believed it can't be broken. It cannot fail. So I think that it's also very clear that Jesus believed that the scripture was imperishable. So this is a theme that's found throughout the Old and the New Testaments, this this idea that God's word will never pass away. Uh, Did Jesus believe this? Well, he endorsed this quite plainly in Matthew 5. In verses 17 and 18, he said, "'Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets.'" Remember, that's the Old Testament. "'I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For I assure you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all things are accomplished.'" He also said, it is easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. That's Luke 6, uh, 16, 17. So Jesus didn't come to replace the Old Testament, to throw it away. Uh, Sometimes there's a theme that emerges in progressive Christianity. Well, they'll say Jesus is the living word. Yes, Jesus is the word made flesh. Absolutely agreed. Um, But what did he believe about the written word? Well, we're reading about what he believed about the written word. And he he says that heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. This is what he's saying. He is, in a way, predicting the New Testament here. My words will never pass away. And I also think it's really interesting, the scene here, right after Jesus' resurrection— So right after his resurrection, we find him on the road to Emmaus, and he encounters a couple of his followers. They don't recognize him at first. They're sort of um, worrying, and and they're disappointed that Jesus had been crucified. They thought he was going to be the one. They thought he was going to redeem Israel. And Jesus basically looks at these guys and says, you guys don't get it at all. You know, didn't the scriptures tell you this would happen? He basically chastises them for not knowing the prophecies, the true prophecies about him That would come to pass. So, and then in Luke 24, 27, he goes on to say, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. The first thing Jesus wanted them to know after he was resurrected was that the scriptures from Moses to the prophets were about him. And this is even before they realized that he was back from the dead. That's how important that was to Jesus. So I want us to take all that we've just talked about concerning Jesus' view of the scripture, and I'm going to read this meme again, and I want you to compare. You can come to your own conclusion here. Compare what Jesus says about the scriptures with what this um, progressive church says about the Bible. The Bible isn't the word of God. The Bible isn't self-interpreting. It isn't a science book. It isn't an answer or rule book. It isn't inerrant, or infallible. The Bible is a product of community, a library of texts, multivocal, a human response to God, living and dynamic. Notice that in the right column, there's no mention of God being even an active agent in the writing of the Bible. I think this is important. And here's the point I want to make with this. I respect everyone's right to come to their own decision about what they think is true, I think everyone should chase down every doubt, gather up all the facts and the evidence that you can, analyze that stuff, and don't believe something that's not true. Follow the evidence, follow truth always. And if, if we come to different conclusions on what that is, I respect someone else's right to come to a different conclusion. I respect someone's right to say, I don't believe in Christianity, I think it's a bunch of fairy tales, I think it's stupid, I don't, I don't buy it, and I, I respect your right to come to that conclusion. But if we're going to call ourselves Christians, if we're going to call ourselves Jesus followers, then I think it's reasonable to say that our view of scripture should be what Jesus' view of scripture was. And Jesus clearly, from what we've read in the scriptures, even just tonight, and there's so much more, he does not agree with this meme from a church that's calling itself a Christian church. And this is, a, this is a big deal, I think. And so I'm going to pause now and go to uh, a few questions, and then I, I'd like to close out with one more thing that I'm, I'm going to go to, because I, what I'd like to do is go ahead and read the doctrinal statement from the church that put out this meme. And the reason I want to do this, guys— um, <clears throat> now I'm talking to you know I, I talked to the progressive Christians who might be watching a little bit earlier now I'm talking to Christians who are really committed to the historic Christian gospel you're not interested in uh, the the new thing of course God is always he God is alive the spirit is always moving but the truths of Christianity are eternal. They're not going to change. What Jesus said is not going to change. Uh, and so what we have in the scriptures, those truths are eternal. They're not progressive. They're not going to progress and change over time. And so the reason I'd like to read this belief statement in a moment is because I want to Christians who are committed to the historic Christian gospel to be aware of what these beliefs look like so that when uh, when you see these things coming into your churches, you can be aware. You can know the language. You can know how to respond to these things. And, and that's not a fear-based approach, guys. Um, if you think about someone that you love dearly, and, and you believe somebody is not telling the truth about that person that you love. It's not just a fearful reaction to stand up for that person and say, no, that's not who they are. And so in my view, that's what we're doing when we stand up for historic Christianity. We're saying, no, that's not who God is. The progressive view of God is not who God is. And so I'm going to read that in just a moment, but I'll get to a few questions first. So this first one I'm seeing here. Okay. Question. When you speak of progressive Christianity, is that simply a term or title that means its followers have a theology that changes with culture? I don't think I would word it quite like that. So progressive Christianity is a movement. And um, in fact, I think your question may be answered when we read the belief statement. I'll let them speak for themselves about what they believe. Um, uh the theology does tend, it seems like it changes with culture. I'm not going to guess the motivation for that. Um, but I'm going to go ahead and read this in a moment. So I think your question might be answered when, uh, when we read that. Okay. Um, let's see. I'm just looking for more questions. My mouse is really slow, uh, guys. Um, Okay, Uh, here's a question. So what is the best way to sway or encourage youth away from these beliefs that are so appealing to them? Um, This is a good question. Um, What a good question. So I would say the best thing to do, especially with young people, first of all, I mentioned the Mama Bear Apologetics book. That's a great book to help you engage with your kids about uh, cultural ideas, things that are popular in culture. but I think that the most important thing we can do with young people is acknowledge their doubts, acknowledge their questions, take them very seriously. We don't, you know, you don't have to be an apologist to help your kid through a question they have about God. You just have to be curious and interested. You can research together. You can go on that journey together. You don't need to be afraid of that. And so I think that, that uh, when I hear deconstruction stories of people who are leaving the faith, um, uh, very often, I'm hearing that you know they had genuine doubts they had actual uh, deep questions uh, troubles that uh, things that bothered them about the Bible just all kinds of things that they came up with and you know in, in their situation they were told you're not supposed to ask those questions or, or they didn't feel like they were in an environment where those questions could be asked where they could process through those things so I think that's probably the most important thing we can do um, also to model the real thing you know we can't be a bunch of hypocrites who don't know our Bibles who don't don't read our Bibles who live like we want to and yet say with our mouths that we're doing something else we we have to live what we're teaching we have to embody it we have to show the world how beautiful this gospel of Jesus Christ is because it is beautiful and and so I think that's that's one of the gifts that I had from my parents was that and again it was not perfect my parents had flaws there were all kinds of stuff you know that that would happen but but they modeled a continual life of repentance, falling back at the feet of Jesus always. And uh, and that, that made it very real for me. So, those are just a couple of things that I would say um, uh, about that. So, um, let me look at a couple more questions. Um, okay, Mandy's asking coming out of a blabbit and grabbit. Progressive church. Okay, how do I change my beliefs that I've been taught, that have been taught to me my whole life, uh, to a theology that is more biblically accurate? So, by blabbing and grabbing, I'm assuming you mean prosperity gospel. Um, and so, pro- prosperity gospel and progressive Christianity are actually not the same thing. In fact, in my experience, many progressive Christians leave the church because they grew up in a kind of prosperity gospel type situation and they recognized the phoniness of that, the inauthenticity of that, and they walked away from that. So, I'm not sure. I, I'm guessing that you mean like a prosperity church. Um, well, no matter what it is, if you want to get some really good, sound, biblical teaching, uh, there there are some really great Bible teachers. I love Alistair Begg. He's got an app. He's just a kind and gentle type soul that just teaches through the Bible. I love that. I love Skip Heitzig's teachings. Uh, just teaches straight through the Bible. Um, you can. There's lots of great books. I think Wayne Grudem has a book uh, where it says something like twenty questions Christians can ask— I'll tell you what, a great place to start is Greg Kokel's book, The Story of Reality. It's basically really good sound theology, but you've it is so delightfully written. It's written like a story, and it will walk you through just the real important points of the core essentials of the Christian faith. You know, it doesn't get into the weeds of secondary issues and things like that. It's it's a very much a mere Christianity, but it's called The Story of Reality by uh, Greg Kokel. So question, uh, Franco is asking, are progressive churches using something other than ESV, NIV, or N, New King James? Sounds like they are pushing something like the message, Brian Johnson. Well, that's, uh, the message is, uh, what's his name? And I can't think, it's not Brian Johnson though. Uh, Now, what I think you might Meaning by Brian Johns, Are you meaning the uh, the Passion translation? Uh, so I don't, uh, I don't, I don't know the answer to that. I did hear, in fact, I think Mike Winger has a video about a Bible translation that just came out recently that's really sympathetic to progressive theology. So you might check that out on Mike Winger's page. Um, I, I don't know. I think they're just, you know, when they're quoting the Bible, it's just like anybody—they're just using whatever. Uh, uh, ter- uh, translation they they prefer or something like that so I haven't I haven't come to see that there's any kind of like specifically progressive Christian Bible. Um, Sean is asking, do you think the most significant area of differences between progressive and non progressive Christians is or what is it and how they oh. Okay, I'm sorry. Let me read that again. Do you think the most significant area of differences between—let's get it back up here—progressive and non-progressive Christians is how they view the authority of the Bible? I would say that's one of the main ones. Um, I do. I think that the view of the Bible is one of the most uh, just differences that we have between uh, progressive Christianity and— and uh, historical Christianity. Um, Okay, so I'm going to move on to this last section here. Um, Okay, so I want to read through this doctrinal statement from this church um, because, again, I said this before, I really—it's my goal, it's my heart to— present to you these ideas accurately. What I don't want to do is build a straw man. And if you're unfamiliar with that term, it's a, it's a logical fallacy where you essentially construct a much weaker version of your uh, you know ideological opponent's view because it's much easier to kick a straw man down or a scarecrow down in a cornfield than it is to kick a real man down. So I don't want to do that. I want to present the progressive Christian views as accurately as possible. So this is the belief statement from this progressive church. And again, I'm doing this because I think that we are going to see a lot more of these churches pop up. So this church started evangelical many years ago, kind of started a slow and subtle shift toward progressive Christianity, and uh, and is now self-identified as a progressive Christian church. So this isn't a pejorative, this isn't um, a derogatory term to call someone a progressive Christian. This is, how they identify themselves. And so this is their belief uh, statement. So our beliefs, it says at our core, we hold to these principles with open hands and humility. So number one is God is a mystery to be explored, not a doctrine to be espoused. God is a mystery to be explored, not a doctrine to be espoused. So in my experience, progressive Christians are typically not creedal in the sense that they're united around uh, uh, like a, a, a core set of beliefs that you, you have to believe these things uh, to consider yourself a progressive Christian. And so I think that's why they're saying it's not a doctrine to be espoused. Now, I just have to take a logical look at this because I always have to do this, but when you say God is a mystery to be explored, not a doctrine to be espoused, that statement itself is a doctrine that is a doctrine about God. And so it sort of refutes itself because essentially just by saying it, you're espousing a doctrine about God. Um, And so I just wanted to kind of make that point. But I see this a lot in progressive Christianity. God is a mystery to be explored. And so um, I think that when you present God as a myst- like this mysterious figure that we can 't quite you know we, we, we can 't pin him down we 're not going to make uh, dogmatic statements about who he is we 're not going to make dogmatic statements about his nature and his character. He's a mystery to be explored. It's more about the journey than the destination. You know, some people have that phrase that they'll say. Um, I think what this does, and this is why I think progressive Christianity is dangerous. I think this is why uh, it is a threat. I know I'm using strong words, but that's a th- it's a threat to the real gospel because the real gospel has certain points in it, certain things it says about God, certain things it says about humans, that if it's true uh, and we reject it, our eternal souls, uh, there are consequences for our eternal souls. Uh, That is according to the historic Christian gospel. But if we just say God is a mystery to be explored, well, this gives everyone permission to sort of create a view of God that lines up with their own personal thoughts and feelings and preferences. So if I just think, oh, God is this mystery, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna just listen to what he does in my heart and what he says. Well, how do I know if it's not just my own mind saying those things. Or, or if I think something is good and true and I'm just assigning that to God, but maybe God doesn't think that thing that I think is good and true is good and true. And so the danger of this is that we can end up constructing a God in our own image. And that is actually an idol. That That's not the real God. And so we do have the Bible to tell us, to reveal the nature and the character of God to us. Certainly, there are things about God that will always be mysterious. Absolutely. I'm not saying there's no mystery, but there are things the Bible reveals to us that are quite clear about who God is, uh, what He loves, what He hates, uh, attributes about who He is. And so um I think that's why it's dangerous to just declare that he's a mystery because you can kind of create a God in your own image. The second one is life is a gift to be enjoyed. Um, I agree on a certain level, of course, but the fundamental difference between progressive Christians and historic Christians is that, and, and we'll see this because we'll get to this in the fourth point, in progressive Christianity, um, there's really no sense of sin separating us from God. And so uh it, Uh, Historically, Christians would say, yes, life, the the truest enjoyment we'll ever know, the deepest joy, the most authentic happiness that can possibly be had, is had when we are in right relationship with God. So when we put saving faith in the beautiful name of Jesus Christ and his atoning and saving work on the cross— then we enter into this relationship with God where we are reconciled to a holy God. And that is when we really find our purpose. That, and of course, we know our purpose is to love God, to know God, to worship Him and be with Him forever. And that can only happen when that relationship is restored. Uh, so, so I think that that is a bit—remember, we talked about linguistic theft where words kind of mean different things. I think there's a little bit of that going on there, but that's how what I would have to say about that one. Number three, uh, love is a responsibility to be shared, um, agree on face value, but here's the thing. Remember, we talked about linguistic theft. Often in the progressive Christian paradigm, love means something very different than it does biblically. So biblically, we look at 1 Corinthians 13, the Bible says, of course, all the good stuff we love, the love is patient, love is kind, all of that good stuff. But it also says, love cannot rejoice in wrongdoing. And it says, love rejoices in the truth. And sometimes truth is hard. Sometimes we have to tell each other hard things. Um, We have to speak to each other uh, to, to help us accountable to each other, to walk in this life and become more and more conformed to the image of Christ every day. But in the progressive paradigm, love is redefined to mean a celebration and affirmation of whatever someone else thinks is good and true, no matter what that may be. So we accept that. We we affirm that. Um, even if it's something that the Bible reveals is, is something that God says, no, you this isn't okay. This isn't, This is a sin. And so, in the progressive world, that love word gets redefined. And so, that's a responsibility that we all share. Okay, so this last one is the good news, and this is the big one. This is the progressive, this is a huge component of the progressive gospel, in my experience. The good news is that you are inherently united. With God. I'm going to read that again. The good news, and that's in both capitals, good news, like gospel, the gospel, which means good news, is that you are inherently united with God. And so, again, the fundamental one of the fundamental differences between progressive Christianity and historic Christianity is that in historic Christianity, you have this narrative arc of God's redemptive acts throughout history. We know that God created the world and he called it good, but he gave people a choice, and they chose to rebel against God. They they chose their own way. They said, "We know better, and we're going to choose our own way." Well, God is holy, which is a really good thing. We want God to be holy because that means He's perfectly just, uh, incapable of being unfair or unjust. God is perfectly holy. That means He can't have any unity with sin. Well, now we have a problem because we have rebelled against him. And then that sin nature is passed down. And by the way, I'm not going to give you all the Bible verses for this. I've got a lot of this in my book. You can look up articles. There's all kinds of articles where you can find the biblical data for all this. I'm just telling you the story. So that sin nature is passed down. And so we inherit that. And so we are sinners. Everyone is born a sinner. And that sin separates us from God because God can't have unity with sin. Now, His holiness is important. We don't want Him to just have unity with sinners because His holiness is how He keeps His promise to wipe away every tear from our eyes. So for those who want to be with God forever, they can be with God forever, completely away from sin and evil and suffering. God actually has solved the problem of suffering, and that's it. And so, but we have this problem. So according to the historic Christian gospel, God's rescue plan, Jesus dying on the cross, taking our sins upon himself, paying the price for our sins, taking our punishment upon himself so that those who want to be with God have the opportunity to put saving faith, active trust in the person of Jesus Christ, and then... Uh, you know, at the, at the end of time, there's the, the final judgment and then our eternal destinations, either with God in his presence forever or quarantined away in a place called hell. And so this is the Christian gospel, but uh, the progressive gospel removes virtually every single one of those elements. So they, they skip right to the beginning and say, well, no, you're not separated from God. The good news is that you already are united with God. And I see this all over the place. And so often in progressive Christianity, you'll hear that it's not your sin that separates you from God. It's your shame. So in some way, it's like if there's a, a, a disconnect between you and God, it's, it's not real. You're not really disconnected from God. It's your own shame that's convincing you you're separated. I've heard, um, I believe Jen Hatmaker referred to it as a self-imposed separation from God. And so uh, all you have to do is realize, I think Richard Rohr words that like realize your belovedness uh, before God, or that might've been McLaren, but you just have to realize that you were never separated from God, that you are united with him, that that there's nothing you have to do. There's nothing you have to repent for. You just have to realize that you are already loved and accepted by God. Now, uh, I don't want anyone to misunderstand me, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. If you're watching, This God does love you, but if you have not put active saving trust in Jesus Christ, then you are still separated from God. And the Bible uses really difficult language for this. This is something we have to wrestle through. Bible says we're enemies of God until we put that trust in him and and in Jesus, until Jesus saves us. We are dead in our sins. And so um, this is the complete opposite gospel of the historic Christian gospel. And so uh, that is their belief statement. And, uh, you know, again, I'm I'm really glad to let them speak for themselves. So number one, God is a mystery to be explored, not a doctrine to be espoused, uh, espoused. Life is a gift to be enjoyed. Love is a responsibility to be shared. And the good news is that you are inherently united with God. Uh, all right. So that is about all I have to say. I just wanted to comment on that meme and because several people had asked me for my thoughts on it. So those are my thoughts. Uh, be watching for some of these ideas and some of these um, catchphrases, some of the, the, the language that we're seeing here, because I think we're going to see a lot more of this, a lot more progressive Christian churches. So to pop up around us. Uh, so I'll go to some questions now. Uh, Javon is asking if the Bible is not the Word of God and it is not inerrant, then how do they know what is true or not? What is their doctrine? Well, that's kind of the point. Uh, progressive Christians really—they're not really surrounded by doctrine. It's not like there's a progressive Christian doctrine about what's true or what's not. Uh, many, certainly not all, but many progressive Christians uh, affirm a, a form of relativism. So that's the view of truth—that objective truth, if it exists. Uh, it can't really be apprehended. Uh, It can't be known by everyone. So uh, truth that you receive is really more of just a construct, uh, kind of your responsibility to deconstruct that construct. And so um, there's a lot of relativism. Follow your heart. What's true for you is true for you. What's true for me is true for me. Now, again, certainly not all progressive Christians are relativists. Many are. Um, But uh, it's a good question. How do they know what's true or not? I, I suspect when I've when I've uh, watched videos where they've commented on this uh, I've heard a lot of people talking about some form of follow your heart or I, I've heard this voice inside or it's kind of a mystical experience or contemplative type experience to show them truth interestingly um, now I think she's a little bit beyond the pale of progressive Christianity but Glennon Doyle in her book untamed who still does claim to be a, a a Christian, and is accepted in the progressive Christian paradigm. She says, you know, go in your closet, meditate, sink lower and lower, and find this place inside of yourself where you find the liquid gold. She calls it liquid gold. And that's how you make decisions. If it feels warm, you say yes. If it feels cold, you say no. So there's a lot of relativistic type answers like that in uh progressive uh christianity but i'd be curious to ask different progressive christians how they determine uh what is true about things like that all right looking for more questions guys um what i need to do next time i what i need to do next time is uh have an assistant here looking through the questions (laughs) so that they can so i don't have to sit here and uh and do this okay okay let's see oh my goodness all right there's a lot of see part of this is i'm seeing all the all the comments i'm scrolling through looking for that question word i'll take a couple more questions if i can find them okay (laughs) oh of course this is the question i find (laughs) would you share your hair care routine oh my goodness thank you i do the curly girl method right now so you can look that up on youtube um thank you that's very kind Um, Oh, here's a question. Uh, What is the mother God thing that is going around? So uh, this is something I do see a lot in progressive Christianity, referring to God as divine mother, uh, mother God, something referring to God as a she. This is very common right now in the progressive uh, Christian paradigm. I actually have a podcast on this topic. If you want to go back, it's with Clark Bates, and I think it's titled... Is God a she? Should we be calling God a she? So I think where this may come from is there are some metaphors in the Bible, some language that refers to God with feminine language. There's a couple of times where it does that. Like Jesus says, uh, compares himself to a mother hen that wants to gather his chicks. Um, So of course, God does not have a gender, he's not male or female. Uh, But especially, you know, in this culture, when you know, we people are so big on respecting people's pronouns. I just want to respect God's pronouns for himself, and he refers to himself as father, and he is the pronoun he prefers in the Bible. So I'm going to respect God's preferred pronoun on that one. And um, I think the mother God thing is— I think that's being informed by feminism. And uh, so, you know, I don't think there's anything wrong with understanding, of course, that God is not a man. He's not male. Um, But uh, I I think there's something—I'm not crazy about the whole Mother God thing, but you can listen to the podcast about that um, if you'd like to. Um, Okay, here's a good question. How do we find a church that is— Teaching sound doctrine. It seems in so many it is sneaking into their doctrine. This is really true. It's, I've, I've had emails from so many people saying it's very, very difficult to find a church that, um, that, teaches the gospel. Um, I know that when we started going to the church we do now, I mean, I my poor pastor, I grilled him. Like, I asked him so many really specific questions. So ask a lot of questions. Um, have grace, because, you know, not everybody's going to always say everything perfect. I always try to have a ton of grace. But if you see consistent patterns of maybe the gospel just not ever being preached or being changed, or maybe the, the cross being referred to as causing child abuse. Or the downplaying of the Bible; those would be signs to look for. And you know, maybe it's time to have a meeting and to to uh, uh, to to bring your concerns to your pastor with respect and uh, with love. But but you know, to really speak up and because this this can kind of like overtake places really quickly. All right, I'm gonna scroll way down because I know there's like some people who have been asking questions down here. Um, Sorry, you guys. I'll do better next time. This is kind of, I'm kind of a noob with the the YouTube live stream thing. I've done it a couple times, but I was also uh, live streaming on Facebook at the same time so I could look at those. Um... Oh, how often do you do live streams answering questions? Not very often, but I would like to uh, start to do that a little bit more, and I don't know all the answers, and if I don't, I'm happy to tell you that I don't, but I'll probably know of a resource I can point you to um, that uh, that will help. So, All right, I'm going to find a couple more here and see if I can find... Okay, here's one. I haven't even read it. How would you, would you suggest peacefully challenging progressive churches in a way like Paul challenged his fellow Jewish brethren in their synagogues? That's a good question. I think, I mean, I think I kind of just answered that a minute ago with, I I would, um, it depends on who you are. It depends on how mature of a believer you are. Uh, I would encourage if you're a new believer and your church is, very obviously progressive. I wouldn't advise you to stay and fight. If you're a new believer, if you're immature in the Lord, go find a church that's going to feed you and give you uh, good doctrine. For those mature believers who know the Word and they are you know, filled with the Holy Spirit, I, I would I would put up a bit of a fight. I think that that's worth a challenge. Now, you can always do that in a respectful way. You can set up a meeting with your pastor, share your heart, share your concerns, but you don't have to budge on truth. And so, I'm thinking of 1 Peter 3.15 uh, always be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within you, but do so with gentleness and respect. That's what God is um, is to is that's what God wants us to do when we're doing that. So I'm um, sorry, I'm trying to read and yeah, somebody's like, you need help. I do, I know. All right, I'm gonna find one more, and I have really enjoyed my time with you guys tonight. I appreciate it. Um, oh, here's a good here's a good non-controversial question to end on. So, Derek's asking, would you consider a church that has female pastors a progressive church? So, not necessarily. Okay, not necessarily. Now, I'm a complementarian, so my theological view on that is that women shouldn't be pastors, but. I put this in the category of—now, it's not an unimportant doctrine. It doesn't—when I say a secondary doctrine, I don't mean it's not important. But the doctrines that I'll put in the core for the essentials are are doctrines that are going to affect your salvation, okay? So do I think a female pastor is going to go to hell? No, Of course not. So I'm going to put that in a slightly different category. Now, there are a lot of female pastors in progressive churches, but at the same time, there are streams of Christianity who ordain women as pastors who other, you know, otherwise their, their gospel is solid. They're, they're, uh, they're upholding the historic Christian gospel. Um, I personally probably wouldn't choose to go to a church that has a female pastor because um, that's that's just a, a conviction I have. I believe that's what the Bible teaches. Uh, but I wouldn't necessarily consider a church with female pastors to be progressive. A church can be conservative theologically and ordain women pastors, in my view. I could be wrong about that, but i um, totally open to changing my mind on that, but that's, that's the best I can do to answer that question. All right, guys, thank you so much for joining me tonight. Um, it was really fun. I'd really like to do this more often. Uh, I, I'd love to maybe just pick a topic. Maybe I won't talk so long next time. We can do more question and answer, but that would be really fun. I want to thank you to—I want to every, I just send a big thank you to everybody who has subscribed. We really just launched this YouTube channel when COVID started, so it hasn't even been, uh, I mean, I had a YouTube channel, but I wasn't really like doing YouTube videos. And so we really started that, built this studio and all that when COVID hit, and it's really grown. And I'm so thankful to all of you guys for subscribing. If you're not subscribed, uh, please subscribe. And it also helps if you hit that bell icon, because then it notifies you when we release a new video. We've got a new short video coming out tomorrow. So be sure and subscribe so that you get to see that. Uh, Thank you so much for listening. I uh, encourage all of you guys to just stay in the Bible. Let the Bible tell you who God is. Let that inform your theology. Let that inform what you think about God and what you believe about God, and you'll be okay, all right? So, God bless you guys. Have a great night. Bye bye. Hey, thanks so much for listening today. If you are listening on iTunes, would you please go over and give us a great review? It helps get the word out to more people. Leaving reviews and comments and likes wherever you receive your podcasts helps out a lot. God bless you. Have a great week.